We're working our way through the books of Samuel. Today will actually be the last Sunday in Samuel until late January. Our brother Trey is going to be bringing us a message from the book of James next week, and then we'll start our Advent series from the Gospel of John. Then we'll pick Samuel back up in January. So 1 Samuel 26 is where we are today. Our passage this morning concludes a series of three chapters that have all had the same theme. And that theme concerns David, David's character, particularly his trust in the Lord. Will David take vengeance on his enemies, or will he leave matters in God's hands? Will he trust the Lord, or will he, like Saul, reject God's Word in order to go his own way? That's been the theme since 1 Samuel 24, and chapter 26 is the capstone of that theme, so to speak. So let's look now to God's Word and listen to how the Lord's work continues in David's life. Please follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hekelah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekelah, which which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the, arm, to the army and to Abner the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now, see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. 
Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will do no more harm to you, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may He deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now together and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Father, we thank You for giving us the Scriptures, the holy, inspired, and errant Word of God, where we hear You speaking to us so that to read the words of the Bible is to hear the very voice of God. We pray, Father, that You would grant us discernment by Your Spirit to know truth from error, to hold fast to the things that are true. Father, to be strengthened in the faith, to be granted discernment, to grow in wisdom, knowledge, and insight into who You are and to how You work in Your people's lives. Father, we confess that we are a a people who need to hear the Word of God again and again. We are prone to wander, Father. And Your Word keeps us near to You. Would You do that work today? Would You grant me faithfulness in the Scriptures, Father, and keep me from error? Would You grant Your people open ears, God, soft hearts, clear sight, and faithful listening? We pray this in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. So 1 Samuel 26, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? I'm sure you noticed it as we read, but the events of 1 Samuel 26 sound strikingly similar to the events of 1 Samuel 24. In both chapters, David has the opportunity to kill Saul. Both times, his men urge him to do so, even to the point of claiming that it's clearly God's will. Both times, David restrains them. And both times David engages Saul in conversation that leaves Saul acknowledging, at least on the surface, that he is in the wrong. The two chapters are very similar. It's like biblical deja vu. And yet, while chapters 24 and 26 are similar, they are not consecutive. This is significant, friends. The progression of the storyline is the key. In 1 Samuel 24, David spares Saul. And in 1 Samuel 26, David spares Saul. But what happens in between those two moments? 
David was determined to kill Nabal, only to be restrained through the wise and persuasive Abigail. Remember chapter 25 that we saw last week? It was a stunning intervention of God's providence that kept David from sin and returned him to the path of faith. So that progression, sparing Saul, restrained by Abigail, sparing Saul, that progression is not accidental. It's a progression of grace. It is a progression of grace. The similar chapters are not duplicates. They're testimonies of God's ongoing work in David's life. Time after time, David has the opportunity to take matters into his own hands. Time after time, David has the opportunity to abandon the way of faith and take a shortcut out of his trial. And yet every time, what does the Lord do? What does the Lord do? He gives grace. Not only to sustain David's faith, but to refine him in the process as well. David's faith is deepening here, friends. The David of chapter 26 is different than the David of chapter 24, and that should encourage us. David's faith is deepening, and it's because of God's ongoing work in his life. So what I'd like to do then is simply walk through the chapter with you, highlighting some evidences of God's ongoing work in David's life. Evidences of grace, God's ongoing work in David's life. There are three in particular. With the first one coming in verses 1-12. to Here we see a patient trust in God's hand. A patient trust in God's hand. Verse 1, the Ziphites are back. And once again, they betray David to Saul. Then notice what happens in verse 2. Saul prepares for another manhunt. He gathers his strike force, 3,000 strong, and they set out to capture David. Surely this time Saul will succeed. He's well armed and he's well protected. Notice the end of verse 5. David spies out Saul's camp and he sees Saul surrounded by his Soldiers, you notice the description there that the army was encamped around him. Saul is surrounded by 3,000 men, including the mighty Abner, who is you know, the, the, the hero of Israel's army. He's the commander. 3,000 men and Abner, all guarding Saul. So from all appearances then, this time will be different than back in the cave in chapter 24. Remember, Saul met David by himself. Now he meets David with 3,000 of his best men. Surely Saul will succeed. He's both well protected and well armed. Surprisingly, that's not how David reads the situation. Notice verse 6. David proposes a daring mission. He's going to infiltrate Saul's camp. David takes Abishai with him, and remarkably, the two men are able to make it all the way into the camp, right to the point where Saul is sleeping. This is the first time we've met Abishai and his brother Joab, over the course of David's life, these brothers will prove to be both loyal and lethal companions. We get a taste of that lethal loyalty here in our text. Notice verse 8. Like David's men in the cave, Abishai sees this as an open door for the Lord. 
Look at what he says. God has given your enemies into your hand this day. It's so providential, Abishai claims. God is moving in a mysterious way. Here it is. Kill him. It's done. It's all so easy. To his eyes, this is clearly God's will. Then Abishai takes it to another level. Notice the remainder of verse 8. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. Friends, David's daring mission just became a dangerous temptation. Do you hear what Abishai is offering David? He's offering him a chance to get rid of his enemies and keep his hands clean. Saul will be dead, David will have the throne, and Abishai will have done all the dirty work. And he'll do it well. One spear stroke and Saul will be dead. It's all so easy. David can claim the crown, and he can also claim, I didn't kill him. I didn't pick up the spear. It's all so easy. And that's what makes it so dangerous. But just as quickly as Abishai makes his offer, David offers his refusal. Look at verse 9. Notice there's no hesitation. There's no deliberation. David resists the temptation. Do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Just like before in the cave, David is restrained by God's character. He knows that the Lord is a righteous judge. To shed innocent blood is to invite God's judgment. What's more, to strike the Lord's king is to rebel against God Himself. So David will not engage in this kind of rebellion. And he's not going to allow Abishai to do so either. By focusing on God's character, David resists sin. And he leads others to do the same. We've seen all that before. But if you look in verse 10, there's a new depth. There's something we haven't seen before. There's a new depth to David's face. Look at verse 10. Listen to what David says and catch the patience that now marks his faith. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. Friends, that's a remarkable confession of faith. And it's full of patience. The Lord has not revealed to David how he will deal with Saul. But David understands that's not even the issue. God can, kill, God can deal with Saul in any number of ways. David can imagine any number of ways that the Lord will take care of Saul. That's not the issue. The issue is not that David know all the details. The issue is that David must wait on the Lord. The issue is that David must restrain himself with patience. God will deal with Saul on his terms and in his timing. David has learned that his responsibility is to patiently wait on God to do what only God can do. And I use that word learned intentionally. David has learned this. This is part of the progression we spoke of earlier. Notice David's language in verse 10. He says, the Lord will strike Saul. You see that verb, strike? That's the same verb used in chapter 25 to describe what the Lord did to Nabal. Chapter 25, verse 38. The Lord struck Nabal and he died. So the same verb is repeated across the two chapters and the second time it comes from David's mouth. Friends, that repetition is telling 
David has learned from his near disaster with Nabal. He has learned what it means to wait on the Lord. He has learned that the Lord will deal with both foolish men and wicked kings. But most importantly, David has learned God will do this only on God's time and in God's way. So do you see what God has done at this point in David's life? God has taken what was a near disaster and He's used it to refine David's faith. In chapter 25, David is a hair's breadth away from losing the kingdom if he reaches out to strike Nabal. David becomes like Saul if he does that. He is a hair's breadth away from it all being gone. It's a near disaster. And the Lord restrains him. But now the Lord uses that same experience to refine him. So that without hesitation, David says, we're not going to kill him. God takes a near disaster and He's used it to refine David's faith. That's grace, friends. That's grace. And the fruit of that grace is patience. Brothers and sisters, what an encouragement this should be to us. What a clear reminder, yet again, that God does not waste anything in the lives of His people. I mean, from our perspective, chapter 25 looks like a waste. What is David doing running around trying to kill fools? It's a waste. No, it's not a waste. It's not a waste. The Lord doesn't waste anything. Whether it be trials or hardships or even trouble of our own making, our sovereign God takes every experience and He uses it as a tool of His grace. He uses it to teach us if we will humble ourselves to receive it. You see, the Lord never takes a break from the good work of refining His saints. He's constantly crafting our character, shaping our hearts, molding us after His image. He never gets tired of that work. He never goes on vacation. He never needs to punch out and catch His breath. He's always working. And that doesn't make the trials of this life easy. And it doesn't mean we should go around making trouble just to see what God might do. That's foolishness. But it does mean that we can be encouraged. It does mean that we shouldn't lose heart. It does encourage us that by God's grace, we can, like David, wait on the Lord. You know, there's a lot of passages in the Bible that talk about waiting. Have you noticed that? I looked it up earlier this morning. There's over 20 in the Psalms. I didn't have a chance to figure out how many of those are David's Psalms. But over 20 instances in the Psalms that talk about waiting. I used to read those passages and I would think to myself, that sounds so passive. If I'm honest, I would read those passages about waiting and I would think, that just sounds weak. It just sounds passive. It sounds stationary. Shouldn't my faith be more dynamic? Shouldn't it have more movement? Waiting just sounds dull. That's what I used to think. But by God's grace, I don't think that anymore. And passages like this one are part of the reason why. Waiting on the Lord is not passive. Not in the least. It's dynamic. It's active. It's vibrant. To wait on the Lord is the exercise of faith. In fact, you could even say that patience or waiting on the Lord is faith in action. Each moment that we wait on the Lord, we say to God, I trust you. 
I trust you, and I trust you're going to do what you've said on your terms and in your time. It's not passive, not in the least. It's active, it's vibrant, it's dynamic. Patience is faith in action. So I, I pray this encourages you, brothers and sisters. In some sense, we're all waiting, aren't we? That's what Christianity is, really. Titus 2.13, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is. We're all waiting. And so as we wait, I pray we'd be encouraged by the truth we see here from David's life, that in the waiting, God is working. And He's working in us the very patience that is needed to keep walking by faith. So it's a patient trust in God's hand. The Lord's work in David's life is not finished. As we move to verse 13, we see another evidence of God's grace. An encouraging reminder of God's power. An encouraging reminder of God's power. I'll be honest with you, this is my favorite part of the chapter. I I simply love what the Lord does here. It's such an encouragement to my faith. I pray it will be an encouragement to yours as well. Beginning in verse 13, David confronts Saul's men over their lack of vigilance. He specifically targets Abner, the commander of the army. Abner is a mighty man, a warrior. But at this point, Abner looks like a failure. Notice David's rebuke in verse 15. Are you not a man? The implied answer is no. Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. Those words have some bite to them, don't they? David means it that way. Abner's been asleep on the job, which is bad enough. But now he's been humiliated in front of the very men he's supposed to lead. But David's not finished. He has one more shot for Abner. Notice the end of verse 16. And now, see where the king's spear is in the jar of water that was at his head. So you can imagine the panic as Abner looks over his shoulder to Saul's place and the spear and the water jug are gone and he realizes, I'm in trouble. The spear and the water jug prove David's claim. That's why David took them, in fact. He took them as proof that he's treated Saul with kindness. I could have killed you, but I didn't. And here's how you know, I have your spear. It's proof of David's kindness. The question, of course, is how David was able to do all this. I mean, just think about it for a moment. He sneaks into a well-guarded camp. He makes it all the way to the headquarters. He carries on a conversation. He pilfers the king's stuff. He sneaks back out. And he does all of this without being detected. How was he able to pull this off? I guess on the one hand, you could say it's just because David is a skilled warrior that he has ninja-like abilities for espionage. I guess you could say that. I don't think that's very compelling or convincing. What does the text say? Does the text tell us why David was able to do this? Yes, it actually does. Look back at verse 12 and notice the explanation given. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. That's the reason, friends. 
David was able to get all the way to Saul's headquarters because God's hand was working in a powerful way. God made them fall asleep. In fact, that's the way we're supposed to read this part of the chapter as the demonstration of God's power that massively overwhelms anything Saul can muster. Just just look at the context. Just read it for what it is. Think about it for a moment. Saul's defenses are quite formidable. He's got 3,000 men all encamped around them. He's got Abner, an experienced commander, keeping watch over him. From the outside, there's no way anyone is getting into that camp. Nobody. There's no way anyone can touch Saul. And yet, what does the Lord do? What does the Lord do? Eyelids get heavy. Heads start to droop. And then pretty soon, all 3,000 men are napping. And David simply walks in without a fight. In his power, God breaks Saul's defenses and he does so with ease. They're taking a nap. But that's not all. It actually gets better. Consider what David took from Saul. He could have taken his tent. He could have taken his robe. He could have taken his crown. Saul would probably bring his crown. He's that full of himself. He could have taken any of those things. What does he take? His spear. If you've been with us throughout 1 Samuel, then you'll know Saul's spear is his constant companion. It's seemingly always in his hand, and he's seemingly always throwing it at somebody he doesn't like. So Saul's spear is a symbol of his power. It's a symbol of Saul's might. But where is Saul's spear now? It's gone. The point couldn't be clearer, friends. God has disarmed the mighty Saul. He has broken Saul's defenses, and now he's disarmed him of his power. And what's more, God has not just taken the spear out of Saul's hand, He's put it into David's hand. Again, the Lord's message comes through loud and clear. The spear in David's hand is a reminder to all who witness this that David, not Saul, is the Lord's anointed. David, not Saul, has the power. David, not Saul, is the one who will reign. You see, it's a stunning display of God's power. Defenses are broken. Saul is disarmed. David is magnified. Why? Because nothing will stop God from raising David to the throne. Nothing. He will use a nap to get what he wants done. Brothers and sisters, I believe it was these reminders of God's power that enabled David to walk by faith. Think about how often the Lord has reminded David of this very truth. Think about how often David has seen God's power whether it was Goliath or Nabal or the Philistines, time and time again, David has been reminded that God fights for his people. David has been reminded that the Lord's hand is not too short. And that truth has emboldened David to trust God with his life. It takes a strong faith to spare your enemies, especially when they deserve justice. It takes a hearty trust in God when the trial keeps going and you wake up another day and the first thing you think is, it's going to happen again. It takes a hearty trust to keep going in those days. Those are the realities of David's life. And they require a strong, robust faith that can endure. And what I'm contending here is that kind of faith comes only from witnessing and trusting the power of God. 
That kind of strong faith that keeps putting one foot in front of the other comes only from witnessing and trusting the power of God to work on behalf of His people. That's what David saw. But even as I say that, some of you may be thinking, yeah, but David is unique. Remember, Jeff, you've been telling us that like every week. David is unique. He saw God's power in very personal, very unique ways. He killed giants. He led armies into battle. I don't get those kind of personal examples of God's power. So how am I supposed to have the same kind of faith if I don't get the same kind of demonstrations of God's power? Well, you're right. We don't witness power like David experienced. God has not given you a picture of His power like the one He gave to David. And He's not going to give you one. He gave you something better. The Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater power than this. The power of God that raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. You see it all over the New Testament. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 6.14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Colossians 2.12, we've been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Friends, David would gladly trade his victory over Goliath for your sight of Christ's empty tomb. He would gladly give up this daring raid on Saul's camp for your vision of the cross. He would trade you for that in a moment. To believe the Gospel is to experience the almighty, unstoppable, life-changing power of God. Don't envy David for what he got. He envies you. Meditate on this Gospel truth, brothers and sisters. Meditate on God's power at work in the crucified and resurrected Christ. See if you can just take five minutes tomorrow morning. Five minutes to sit in the quiet before the day starts, before the kids start asking for more frosted flakes. Just take five minutes and sit there and hold in your mind that God became a man and He died and now He's not dead anymore. Just meditate on this. And as the Spirit causes you to see more and more the depth of God's power that was at work in your salvation, the stronger your faith will become. Remember, friends, faith takes its strength from its object, not its subject. To say it another way, it's what you believe in that strengthens your faith, not the person who does the believing. So to grow stronger in faith, we need to fix our eyes on the Almighty God who has saved us by His power in Christ. So, I say this week after week because that's because I'm a one-message pastor. This is all we need to hear. May we be a people who are steeped and soaked and rooted in the powerful Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only encouragement I can give you for how your faith will grow strong. That's number two. An encouraging reminder of God's power. 
That brings us to the end of the chapter where we see a final evidence of God's work for David. Beginning in verse 17, we see a confident hope in God's deliverance. A confident hope in God's deliverance. As was the case in chapter 24, this passage concludes with a conversation between David and Saul. David makes many of the same points that he did before, but what's different in this passage is the confidence you hear in David's testimony. It's not to say that David wasn't confident before, it's that the confidence seems deeper here. Or maybe it comes out in clearer expression. Either way, God's working. The question, of course, is where does this confidence come from? Saul seems to have all the advantages. So how is David able to confront him with such confidence? Well, as you might expect, the answer has to do not so much with David as it does with God. Scan through the verses with me and notice how the Lord informs David's confidence. Aspects of God giving him confidence. First off, David is confident in God's justice. After declaring his innocence in verse 18, David moves quickly to make his appeal. Notice verse 19. If God is behind Saul's pursuit of David, then David will make the necessary offering. He'll offer a sacrifice of atonement. But if wicked men have incited Saul, then David will trust God's justice. Again, notice what David says, verse 19. May they be cursed before the Lord. Cursed. Now that might sound like a harsh statement to us, but it's not. It's a statement of faith. It's David's way of saying, these people are sinning against me, but I'm not going to return evil for evil. I'm going to leave them in the Lord's hands. I'm confident in God's justice. You see, these wicked people who are lying about David, they're, they're not just causing him to have to leave his home and live in the wilderness. They're trying to cut David off from the people of God. They're trying to cut him off from his heritage of the Lord. Notice the language at the end of verse 19. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go, serve other gods. Now David's not saying that he's tempted to idolatry. He's not about to start worshiping other gods. He's saying that his life on the run has kept him from gathering with God's people for worship. Because he's living in the wilderness at Ziph, he can't go offer sacrifices with the priests. He can't go offer prayers with God's people. He's being cut off. And this is gut-wrenching for David. He longs for God's presence. He longs for worship. But these wicked people are driving him away. And yet David maintains his trust in the Lord. How? Because he's confident in God's justice. God will do what is right. David's also confident in God's Word. Look at verse 21. Saul offers another confession, but as before, he's not genuine. I don't think Saul is ever repentant. Ever. Look at the text. Saul sounds sorry, but did you notice he makes no reference to God? He just makes reference to himself and to David. Friends, if sorrow is not directed towards God, then it's not genuine repentance. David knows this. He's discerning here. So instead of putting his confidence in Saul's shallow confession, David puts his confidence in God's Word. Notice verse 23. The Lord rewards every man for his faithfulness and his righteousness. 
That's a rebuke to Saul. Saul's not righteous. Saul's not faithful. But that's David's confidence. That's why David keeps walking by faith, because he trusts that the Lord will do what is right. God's Word says that righteousness leads to life. And David believes that promise. Righteousness leads to life. So I'm going to trust the Lord. My confidence is in God's Word, David says. That's how he walks by faith. He's confident in God's Word. Friends, do you know God's Word to that degree? That you would be able to look for specific promises to sustain your faith in the face of trials? It's the exhortation here for us to be people who know God's Word and know the promises that would encourage our faith. Finally, David's confident in God's sovereignty. Verse 24 is so striking. Notice with me what David says. He's talking to Saul. And he says, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in, and you would expect him to say, in your sight. That is, in your sight, Saul. That's what you would expect him to say. That's not what he says. His confidence is in God. So may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may He deliver me out of all tribulation. You see, regardless of how Saul acts, David will entrust himself to the Lord and he is confident that God is able to save him. Friends, that's why so many of David's psalms speak of God as his refuge. Because that's where David hides himself. In the sovereign care and protection of God. Saul can make all the promises he wants. Saul can fake repentance all that he wants. David's confidence will rest in God's sovereign hand. So when we step back and put these truths together, we have a clear picture of David's confident hope. God's justice reminds David the Lord will do what is right. God's Word encourages David to walk in the Lord's truth. And God's sovereignty assures David that nothing can stop the Lord's hand to save. You put those truths together, friends, and the fruit is hope. The fruit is confident hope that God will deliver. And brothers and sisters, what I want to emphasize to you here is that this kind of hope does not spring from thin air. And it's not just wishful thinking. You see, hope is not a pie-in-the-sky approach to life Hope is not just a sunny disposition that belongs to positive-minded people. Hope is the fruit of faith that embraces who God is and how He works for His people. Christian hope, at its heart, is a confidence in our sovereign God. Do you remember the Apostle Paul's ministry in Asia? Do you remember what happened to Paul when he went to Asia? Acts 19. Paul goes to the city of Ephesus and then a riot breaks out because that's what the Gospel does is it turns the world upside down. Paul goes to Ephesus and a riot breaks out and he has to leave town or be killed. How would you like that to be your alternatives when you wake up one day? Hey, Paul, you can either move or they're going to kill you. That's his ministry. It's a terrifying moment in Paul's ministry. But amazingly, you remember, Paul didn't quit. Right? He didn't turn back. He pressed on with his ministry. He remained hopeful. How? Well, Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 1. Listen to what he says. God delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Friends, the key phrase is on Him. 
Hope rests on God. Hope rests on God. That's what hope is, friends. It's a confidence that comes from faith in the living God. And that's what we see here in David's life in chapter 26. He's confident, he's even hopeful, because he knows the God whom he serves. He knows how God has worked. And he's confident in hope that God's work will continue to the end. Friends, I don't know about you, but I often stand in need of hope. I often need my confidence renewed that God will finish His work. That the trials of life are actually for my good. That there is reason, as James says, to count them as joy. I often stand in need of hope. Can you relate to that? Do you stand in need of this kind of rock-solid, confident hope? then let's do like the Apostle Peter encouraged us to do in the first chapter of his epistle. Let's set our hope fully on the grace of God that will be given to us at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. What I love about Peter's exhortation is that the hope is active. I'm setting it on something. It's not a feeling. It doesn't come to me from the outside per se, like uh, circumstances changing. I'm setting it on God. That's what David's doing here. That's what Peter's exhorting us to do in 1 Peter. That's what Paul did in Acts 19. Let's do the same. That's how hope is renewed. By setting our hope fully on God's work. And that gives us confidence and hope that it will persevere to the end. Well, friends, what a wonderful encouragement we find from David's life. I'm so encouraged that God is not finished with him. The Lord's work of grace is producing patience. It's strengthening David's faith by God's power. And it's sustaining his hope with the reality of our sovereign God. How kind of God to carry on his work in David's life. Amen? How kind of God. And what's more, how kind of God to use David's life to remind us he's doing the same thing for us as well. He won't quit. So may we be encouraged that God's work never fails. It never falls short. It never stops. And may God alone receive the glory both now and to eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a great...